Lovers podcast from Spartanburg County Public Libraries. This is a show where we talk about books, reading, and culture. I'm Joseph Henderson, the media specialist. I'm Carmenita Turner, the media collection development librarian. And I'm Jess Herzog, the director of adult services. In the world of speculative fiction, Jeff Vandermeer reigns supreme. And nowhere is that more apparent than with his novel Born, which delves into the post-apocalyptic relationship between Rachel, a scavenger, and the sentient object she plucks off the side of a massive flying bear. In this episode, we discuss the limits of personhood and agency, how Born relates to some of our other book club picks, and the depths of the Anthropocene. Let's get started. Jess and Joseph, what made you guys choose this as our book for this episode? <laughs> what forced you? <laughs> a giant bear flew over me in my dreams. That's and what said, it was. You need to pick this book. <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, a couple of years ago, uh, or actually maybe a decade ago, SCPL was very involved in something called the National Endowment of the Arts Big Read. And it was essentially a community read concept where patrons would come, they'd get the book, they'd read it together, we'd have a ton of programming. It was like this month-long event. And when I first worked here, we were doing Fahrenheit 451, and that was actually the last big read that we did at the time. We had taken a break from it after that. And I started looking into it again. Joseph actually sent me a link saying that Born by Jeff Vandermeer, which is the book that we're discussing, uh, was chosen to be part of the Big Read offerings. And we had both read it before and loved this book. So we we ended up actually applying to the National Endowment of the Arts for the Big Read grant and <laughs> applying to do the Big Read in April 2021. And between me turning in the application and getting notification from the NEA that we weren't selected. Everything with COVID happened. We were in lockdown for for two and a half months. Um, and I got the message from the NEA that we didn't get the grant. And I was sad for literally exactly seven minutes. And then I realized what a bullet we dodged because just having gone through April 2021, we wouldn't have been able to do virtually any of the programming that we wanted to do with this book. Um, Absolutely not. In the, in the way that we had intended. A lot of it was in person. A lot of it was outdoors, interacting with nature, um, interacting with art. A lot of it wouldn't have been able to happen. So in a, in a way, I think we, we were actually very lucky that we didn't get the grant because I wouldn't have wanted to represent this book that way. But one of the things that we talked about with book lovers was some of the titles that we were considering and born was among them. And they were all really interested in reading this book and discussing it, regardless of whether we got the grant or not, they were really interested in it as a topic, as something to dig into. And we ended up putting it on the calendar for this year. Yeah. Cause I think if I remember correctly, um, when we were originally planning to apply for the, for the NEA grant, we also asked a couple of members of the book club or asked anyone that was essentially interested if they would read the book 
and see what they thought about it kind of at the time uh so so there was a there were multiple sessions of reading that kind of led up to actually reading it for the book club in this calendar year right so did you two read this prior to this episode yes i read it when it came out i think i was maybe first in line on the holds list for it when it came out here because i had read jeff vandermeer's um area x trilogy which is annihilation the book that the movie is based on um, authority and acceptance, which is a fantastic trilogy. And I really, really loved it. And I was very excited to see what he was writing next. So when I heard about born, I was like, I got to read this. This was an example of one of the, one of the many books that since I started here, Jess harangued me about reading, uh, because I hadn't yet read it. And I had read other things by, by the author. Um, 10th of December was the last example and uh, now we have yet another example here. I did harangue, Born. and I continue to harangue. Yeah, <laughs> that's what a good friendship is based on. Yeah. Truly, you yeah, just haranguing each other, wearing each other down, yell at each other to read the thing or watch the thing until someone finally caves and does it, and then the person says, "Oh my god, it's amazing!" And you say, "I know." No, I told you. <laughs> if that's if that's what a good friendship is based on, then we have like the best friendship of all time because so. we just scream at each other until someone watches a movie you or reads a book. This? Yet, <laughs> yeah. Currently happening. Read it. Currently happening to me with Arrival, which is a film based on a Ted Chiang story. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we're it's it's just continuing to happen. Yeah. So yeah, that's the that's sort of the long and the short of um of how we we ended up with the with the novel on our list of of books for this year because um Jess and I are, are sort of in the practice of making decisions about the uh, the book lover's schedule towards the end of the calendar year um, and what the next year is going to look like and thinking about the thinking about the shape of that and if it can occasionally be matched up with other programming and other things like that whenever yeah. that's possible it's not always possible but right and that's quite a thing for our book club as an ongoing basis. And it's you, I think unique to a lot of book clubs because many book clubs that I know about meet, they decide the book for the next month. They read that they meet, they decide on the book for the next month. Right. It's a month to month venture. Our book club here at the downtown Spartanburg branch of SCPL is specifically, we design an entire calendar year of picks go through them and then in November we decide the next year of picks and it's become this this kind of exciting thing I think for a lot of the members they start asking about the bookmark (laughs) as it were in like September because they know it's coming because they know it's coming and I I make a bookmark every year with our full list of a year-long set of picks and they're very excited to see what's going to be on it it's always kind of a big thing for them to see like where we're going and what we're thinking about as a journey through the year um, and what topics we choose what authors we come up with what titles because inevitably there are titles that they've never heard of that no one's ever read there are a couple of titles that they probably have heard of um, but like it's always like a whole new world opening up for them of the coming year of books. And that's always very exciting for them. And I really love doing it. I love pulling together that set and really constructing it. And Born was at the center of a lot of our conversations about this because we knew we wanted to do it in 2021. 
Well, one of the things that I think is really interesting about the about creating that schedule is the way in which you can have these moments of surprising crosstalk from month to month about particular titles that you might not necessarily have anticipated going in because you can't really know you can't really know about how a particular book is going to strike you at the given time that you read it and then how the next book is going to strike you at the given time of how you read it but then you automatically see oh these things are kind of in conversation with each other maybe just because we put them next to one another so for instance right now just as a little bit of a promo for the next month's book which i guess this will come out maybe before we uh we we taught we meet as a group to talk about that but we're going to be talking about in the dream house by carmen maria machado which is um which is a work that i have seen in in critical literature as described as a speculative memoir because it uses devices um from uh speculative different types of speculative fiction from horror to science fiction and even fantasy and to to a certain extent um to tell this really experimental style memoir of abuse and born itself is also a work of speculative fiction and you know i didn't necessarily put those things together because of those genre attachments but i think I've already started reading in the dream house and I've started to see interesting ways in which these books kind of can talk to one another. Absolutely. And I, I think we go back to Jude, the obscure as well and say, there's, there are some really interesting ways in which Jude and Bourne meet each other in a certain way. Jude and Sue's relationship with Rachel and Wicks, which we'll talk about later in this episode um, but also, like, being part of a world that clearly doesn't want you. That's a huge theme for both books. And right. going back even further <laughs> to Parable of the Sower. Sure. Yeah. Which is being a part of a world that actively is trying to kill you. Yeah. For both yeah. Lauren and Rachel. And having this kind of scavenger survivalist kind of life and how that impacts your understanding or your relationship with religion and the world around you and both of those are really big topics in both of these books that were selected for the book lovers yeah so there's like a similarity there but it's not an identical uh you know uh similarity yeah it's instead a kind of like there we end up seeing these like variations on a theme or variations on a set of different themes and concerns that kind of run through the year um and and I would like to say, well, that was all intentional, and we knew that that was going to happen, and this, that, or the other thing. But it really Bad doesn't. News, it it really doesn't not, work that way. We aren't yeah. that brilliant. No. <laughs> Most of the books on our list, neither of us have read. I would say yeah. the majority of them. Um, so we, a lot of this is just like the dumb luck of universal themes, really. And I think Jude and Born is especially interesting to compare the two because one is like a a classic piece of Victorian literature and one is kind of high science fiction and climate fiction. And they're so, they seem on the surface so vastly different to readers, but there's so much that pulls the two of them together. And it says that like, there's a lot of themes and appeals that transcend genre. And so genre should never stop you from picking up a book simply because you say, Oh, I don't read science fiction or I don't read horror. There's a lot else that could appeal to you in in a certain way. Well, Branching off of that idea, I think it I think it would be useful maybe to talk a little bit about the particular appeals of this novel um, and 
how readers might come to uh, establish a, uh, a possible connection with it. So in talking about uh, this, this idea of the, the different angles of appeal that this book might have for, um, for, for different readers, you know, it's a, it's born is a tricky book initially to sell because there's a way in which I, I am almost hesitant to start with synopsis and plot summary. And instead I, I almost want to go to that point of appeal to say, so do you have a pet? Do you have a garden? <laughs> right? Like I want to just ask those really basic question <laughs> yeah have you ever just spent a long time paying attention to a bird um you know i mean those are those are actually the questions that i think open up and signal to people potentially what this book really engages with because yes it is a post-apocalyptic story about scavengers who are living in a city that has been ruined by a company that treated the city as an extractive colony and it begins when one of those when one of those scavengers, Rachel, uh, discovers on the hide of a giant flying bear named Mord uh, something that kind of looks like a sea and a cross between a sea anemone and a plant. Yes. Now, there are some people I know uh, that when they when they hear that they think I'm out. Sign me up. But then there are other people who are like Jess who no would way. say no thanks. That's not personally how I feel, but I, I, this is a very hard book to summarize. So when you try and sell it by the plot summary, that's not going to work. And it's immediately weird and kind of bizarre because it starts immediately giant bear pulled this weird looking plant thing off of it. And so this was a very, so on our last episode, we called the 10th of December, a toe dip into speculative fiction. This is diving into the deep end. (laughs) Not even, it's like those free diving videos you can find on YouTube of someone like diving into this black chasm Uh in the ocean. That's what this book is like. You just have so much going on from page one. That it is hard to summarize. Yeah, this is full immersion baptism. All yeah. your head is under the water. And Just I like the ready. idea of presenting it as have you uh, presenting it as the pet's nature because essentially it's really a story about caring for something. Right. From the first moment of its coming into being, almost until its ending. I think that's exactly right, and I so think that's that why I think it's so great to talk about plants. And pets, because that's something where we do tend to sort of see this thing when it first starts out. We nurture it. We care for it. We get surprised by how it develops and grows. And then it comes to some kind of end. And and I think that that's the, that's the place where you say, okay, if we're going to talk about appeal, um, we lean towards something that is almost, roughly speaking, universal. You know, this idea that, well... Here we are in the world and we have people or or things or other living creatures that we care about. Yeah. And that's the that's the space that this book is is reaching for. Right. There's there's such a hard place as someone who interacts with animals in particular where and I, I've been around animals my entire life and I am an avid horseback rider and I've had long relationships with a number of horses over my life and there is a place that you come from as someone 
who interacts with and communicates with an animal, that is so hard because you want to know what they're thinking. You want to be inside their brains and you just cannot. And one of the great things about Born is that it gives you an idea maybe of what would happen if they could talk back to us, if yeah. they could communicate verbally with us. I mean, there are other ways that all all animals and plants communicate that we are not privy to or we are in some way privy to. Like when my cat screams at me, I know it wants something. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. When my horse whinnies, I know that it's not calling for me. It's calling for another horse. Like I, I know some of that stuff, but I can't look into their eyeballs and be able to say like, this is what you are needing in this moment. I don't know exactly what my cat needs. It's probably food. <laughs> probably. Every once in a while, it's like being held. Mm-hmm. So I'm never totally sure. Um, but Born gives us like a path to think about that, about what would happen if they could talk back. Yeah. And so, it, and so that's maybe another facet of the appeal is to say, okay, if one of the guiding questions is, have you ever had a pet? <laughs> you know, have you ever had a pet? Have you ever paid attention to uh, animal to animals in some way? Then, then there's even the like more reaching question, which I think is another one that is shared, which is to say, if your dog could talk, what would it say? <gasps> right? Like if your cats could talk, what would they say? You know, Feed and, me. Yeah. I mean, usually that's most of what they're saying, but that's not the only thing they're right. saying. Right? And another thing I think is of with the relationship between us and pets as you're coming to this is your pet often turns to you for guidance yeah and what to do like just this morning um i have a two-story home and i was going downstairs with my dog one of my cats had knocked over a giant box mm-hmm. so it's just a cardboard box that's in my hallway they knocked it over my dog could not figure out how to go around this box and i was still on the stairs because i knew this would happen and i thought it was kind of funny but he tries to go around the box and then he comes back to the foot of the stairs and looks up at me and then goes back to the box and then looks up at me from the box and that was him trying to communicate with me me. yeah i don't know how to do this Mm -hmm. and so he was looking to me he was looking to me for guidance to help solve that problem and i think and that's one of the things that happened very early and kind of throughout the book between rachel and born born is always looking to rachel of how to be good how to do the right thing and what Rachel says is good. What am I? Yeah. Can you tell me what I am? Where am I? And where did I come How from? How do I exist? Yeah. And so, so in the end, what we're, I, I guess what we're kind of circling around here um, as an appeal for this book is to say, well, yes, it is a, it is a work of, of speculative fiction, but it, but that speculative fiction points towards such a recognizable and familiar space, um, which is that that social space of relationships where where those where different levels of relationship across different types of hierarchies or different types of divisions can can reach towards uh, different realms of of communication and negotiation something like Carmenita what you're talking about the that social space of the dog that looks to to its owner to say this is a problem I recognize this is a problem I have no idea how to solve it Um, uh, to to the space that resembles, at least over the course of the novel, um, that between the parent and the child uh, that we see between Rachel and Bourne, uh, where where the question often comes back to, what does it mean to be good? 
What does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to have capacities for X, Y, or Z, right? Capacities for care, but also capacities for violence. So it's a, it's a book that really does take you to those, those deep and reflective places. But, um, but it almost seems like, at least for me, I feel like that's the selling point, not necessarily the, the plot summary or synopsis, which is interesting because on a certain level, it almost reconfigures the way readers' advisory conversations often work. Well. Maybe. Maybe. A lot of... A lot of... Um, People who are early in the journey of reader's advisory often approach selling a book to someone with the plot. Yeah. And that is almost never what the patron is actually wanting. When Mm -hmm. someone comes up and says, I want a good book, they're not going to then outline for you the plot of what they want that book to be. They're going to outline how they want the book to make them feel or they want them want to think a certain way about something, or they're really interested in a certain theme or a topic. It's never, it's almost never about the plot itself, right? So when we approach selling a book to a patron based on plot alone, that really doesn't get to the heart of the matter of what they're wanting and what they're wanting to hear, which is why it's going to be a good book. And plot almost never does that. Mm-hmm. Plot plot tells you what happens from beginning to end but it's not going to give you how you're going to feel about it right man walks down street can be read any number of different ways depending on if james patterson is writing man walking down the street or if jeff vandermeer is writing the man walking (laughs) down the street right sure so (laughs) with readers advisory what we really want to get to the heart of is those themes and those appeals and thinking about like what is my dog saying to me or when they look at me in a certain way and that kind of thing and that's really where the appeal of born lies right so one of our appeals is the relationship between you and your pet or you and nature and this book has a lot of relationships and within itself too there's the relationship between rachel and born when she first finds rachel there's rachel and wick her lover slash partner in this survival scenario yeah, and like business partner, kind of. <laughs> like Drug dealer, sort of. Drug dealer slash, eh, who knows. Wix, there's a lot going there's on. A relation, there's a very big relationship. And then there's the company in the city. Mm-hmm. There's right. Mord in the city. Then there's Mord and the other creatures that we have in the city that are not obviously human. Mord's eventual proxies. Yeah. His little, his ducklings. So <laughs> you have a word. lot of relationships in this book that we can sort of parse out. Right. There's a lot of conflict within those relationships. So there's the classic like man versus self, man versus man, man versus nature, that kind of thing. And we get a look at a lot of those different types of classic conflict through the many different relationships in Born, for sure. I think one of my favorite relationships in this book, I mean, Rachel and Born is a really obvious one because Born starts out very much like a like a child and there's there's a wholesomeness to him that exists forever yeah really um but one of my favorite relationships in this novel is actually looking really closely at wick and born and how they relate to each other um as with every episode that we do this is this is the uh 
spoiler zone, so we're not going to sugarcoat anything. But one of the most interesting things to me in this novel is the reveal at the very close to tail end of the novel that much like Bourne, Wick himself is a biotech and he's actually been built by the company and he is a biotech to help to build Mord and turn him from a human into the tremendous flying bear uh, leeching on madness that he is. And there's this huge, uh, that reveal always makes me reconsider Wick and Bourne's relationship and why Wick is so defensive of Rachel and afraid of Bourne and wants to take him apart. There's a great line in Wick's letter that goes into showing that. And so I'm going to read that out. This is um, on page 306 of the hardback edition. Then came Bourne and I couldn't take Bourne away from you because I had meddled in your life too much already. You kept asking me if Bourne was a person, but I couldn't believe I was a person, Rachel, so I couldn't tell you. Yeah, and that just, that's so revealing, and it forces you as a wick, I think, does more than any other character in this book to force you to think about what constitutes personhood, right, and what constitutes agency, and who who we allow ourselves as people ourselves to define as other people and other humans and what the difference is between personhood and humanity. And they're just, it's just such an interesting pairing because Wick and Bourne have this relationship that is almost mostly off screen because most of the novel is written really from Rachel's perspective with the subtraction of the letter from Wick and, um, this is like a, a journal of Rachel's that she's writing to a future reader of some sort. And so most of Wick and Bourne's interactions are off screen. We don't know about them, but we hear about them secondhand. Bourne will mention something or Wick will mention that Bourne's visited or something like that. And Rachel's always very taken aback. And it makes you think, what did that look like for the two of them to be encountering each other? And what did it look like for Wick to have a certain level of consciousness about the fact that neither of them are what they seem to be? Yeah. And there's a sense that there's a sense that Wick possesses a certain um, a certain level of awareness uh, about his own status as biotech in comparison to um to rachel's you know human status uh and and so so we know that there's this sense of contrast and conflict but because of the way that the story is told up until the point of wick's letter which happens fairly late in the novel and kind of reconfigures much of what we've known uh to that point you know, we we don't exactly have the we don't have the terms or we don't have the framework to to fully understand that. But it's interesting, though, to think about the relationship, the particular relationship between those characters, because I think that through them, um, Vandermeer signals the the unique way in which he is engaging with some of the uh, at, at this point sort of classic and established questions that are at the center of many 
science fiction stories and novels and films um, definitely concerning exactly those questions uh, of um, the, what actually constitutes uh, ethical or moral personhood um, and that that category uh, as it pertains to people um, and robots and animals and biotech <laughs> and 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 right um, and and how we how we can ascribe uh, agency to to different characters and their actions the 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 classic uh, that comes to mind for me that is is kind of like born in the way that you can kind of turn it over in your mind and it it just really reflects back different different concerns the more you you really think about it is um, do androids dream of electric sheep by Philip K Dick where where you have uh, the character of um, of Deckard at the center, who who is essentially working as a as a uh, uh, as a replicant hunter uh, for these escaped androids from an off uh, planet colony. I think they're on the moon. They're either on the moon or Mars. I don't know. It's been a minute since I've read the book. It's I've seen Blade Runner more recently. But the the way that Philip K. Dick plays with the the sort of android human relationship is almost to set up the social the social situation of something like slavery mm-hmm. where the the replicants are working as slaves on this colony and and so the main character of the of the novel really is an android slave catcher and yet he uses this he uses this framework as a way of thinking about what it means to be human what it means to be an android how you how you make any kind of distinguishing divisions between the two and all of that is just to say born takes us to a similar but very different place that at least to my mind feels very much up to date with so many of the questions that i think we we are pressed to consider now in a time of real awareness about global climate change for sure and i think it's i think bringing up philip k dick in comparison with vandermeer is a really great point because as a reader you're looking at them both working with the same raw material like they're working with a block of clay but they are creating completely different sculptures out of it right and that's kind of as a reader like is that clay the thing that appeals to you and if that's the case then both these books are going to work for you even though they feel like they're vastly different sure right and to to be able to for vandermeer to be able to bring into light a little bit of the what's called the anthropocene which is the existence of humanity as a geological era of time um and to be able to address the climate change crisis even in kind of like a not an overt way saying this is the thing that happened we're naming it but to say covertly this is what these people are living with the impact of for their entire lives um, is very smart to not just like address it and point it out and to kind of that's one thing where readers are almost eased into it is just because it's just the life that Mm -hmm. Rachel lives and this is a this is a sort of place to go back to that initial consideration of 
relationships for just a second because I think that I think that the way in which this book creates this kind of fractal situation around how we consider the structure of relationships um, and the very nature of them uh, absolutely pertains to uh, you know Anthropocene sort of science fiction um, because you 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 have to consider the the place and the status of human beings in in the environment um, and whether that how that relationship is harmful and is beneficial the question that comes up between Rachel and Wick early in the novel is um, is whether or not their relationship to each other is parasitic or whether it is symbiotic and I think that like for each one of those relationship pairs that you listed Carmenita those questions are that question is at play constantly and it switches actually like it depends on how you look at it sometimes yeah Yeah. one of the relationships I liked as far as the symbiotic and climate change is the city and the company Mm -hmm. and how I the city the way the company impacts the city and what we see of it, it's very easy for us to come away and say the company's bad. It's not good. It just did bad things. But as far as humanity goes, that's not really the reality of companies and genetically modifying things. Everything always starts out with the best of intentions. So the goal was the company, I imagine the company's first goal was to have that more symbiotic relationship where it's like we come in, we create these jobs, we help the city be better, we're helping the earth be better, then the the city is helping us be a better company and organization and then somehow that that shifted into right. this very incredibly parasitic out of control out of control yeah awful relationship of the company just eating up the city right and it's just so interesting to sort of look at it look at it through that lens of something starting out as a really positive, symbiotic, helpful kind of a thing, and then just derailing. Yeah, and to look a little more deeply at the company, without the company, Wick would not exist. And without Wick, Rachel would be dead because he was the one who saved her and took her back to his home, which is the balcony cliffs, which is the apartment. (laughs) The, The weird dirty apartment complex that they live in <laughs> um which is picked clean by born because he eats like everything in sight that's there <laughs> um but he's the one who saves rachel so without the company in its existence there would have been no way for rachel to survive but there may have been no way for rachel to get to where she was either and maybe a worse situation would have awaited there's always that like that balance of what if, what if the company hadn't existed? What if the company had decided to do this differently? There's a project that is mentioned multiple times in the book. That's never really completely fleshed out called the fish project, (laughs) the Um, fish project, which is actually clarified in a later book of Jeff's called dud astronauts, which is extremely creepy. Um, what the fish project actually is, (laughs) but there's, there's additional information there that biotech could have been, more could have been worse could have maybe been better we don't know because the company collapses and on itself and i think something like that really brings to your attention makes you think about the world around you which is what i think the best speculative fiction does is really make you think beyond what's happening in the book and think about the world around you we don't really see that too much with other genres but it's very intentional in speculative fiction of what other things in our world are 
impacting the earth in a negative way and what would happen if that wasn't there would things really be better or would things be much much worse and the idea of just not knowing and having to just go on these thought experiments constantly is one of the things that speculative fiction allows us to do yeah and i think that i think that speaking to sort of going back to that question of appeal there's perhaps even a level of of uniquely local uh, appeal in this novel around the relationship between the company and the city because where we live uh, was at one time um, you know the hub of uh, pardon the pardon the pun um, <laughs> Spartanburg is the hub city uh, wow. uh, but but we were we were at the center of um, of a regional uh, uh, sort of blossoming of the textile industry that yes. now that now is considerably diminished and and i mean and you could say well all right there were there were actual concrete uh benefits to the presence of that industry in the area it meant the development of roads the development of railroads um all all Whole forms villages, of, of course right yeah infrastructure all of this stuff followed from it mm-hmm. But then the, we have the downside of it during the heyday of the mill villages and um and the mills. I live in a mill village, and I have heard so many stories of the um, company money that yeah. you could only spend oh, yeah. in Script. the village. So it was a way of like getting people kind of out of poverty, but keeping them just enough in this parasitic relationship to be dependent on the company. Right. Reminds me so much of a book that we read in Book Lovers a while back called Delicious Foods by James Hanaham. And it's a very similar concept where a woman who is really desperate for drug money is picked up by a group that says, we'll pay you to work at this farm. And they give her the drugs, but it turns out that the drugs are up, up marked like 500% every time she takes a hit. It's more that she has to pay back to the labor camp, essentially. And it's like modern day slavery. And it's a way to to keep a group of people in check. And so it's <laughs> and the, the place is called Delicious Foods. That's the farm mm-hmm. that they work <laughs> on, which it's a very f- it doesn't sound like it's funny, but it is very funny in parts. It's partially narrated by crack cocaine is one of the main characters in the book, which is actually a unique perspective, very similar to Bourne. It's not a personification that you would expect to see. And yet there it is. And it gives you a whole new way of thinking about what something is and what something does to you and how you interact with it. And thinking and thinking, too, about about systems and how how these how different systems can organize and reorganize and rewrite these different relationships in some form yeah so i guess yeah that local appeal was one of the things i remember i remember being really struck by when we were doing our preparatory work for making a pitch about this book in 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 our uniquely local context um was thinking about the histories of uh histories of textile industry and again, like thinking about Spartanburg, South Carolina, or the upstate in general as a kind of extractive colony um, in, in relation to other larger companies that now have nothing really to do with this place anymore. Except for one, which is what I thought of while do, reading do, do, this. Do. Yeah. And when we were doing this for the Book Lovers Book Club, the question came up of what kind of city do you think this book is set in? Mm-hmm. And I thought of this being a place kind of like Greer. 
Yeah. Mm. Place that's small, but has this giant company that just came in and kind of took over. And we have BMW here that we right. have a lot of regional pride for, but what if things kind of go down from that? Yeah, so right. much of the identity of Greer is tied to that plant. I mean, so much identity for Spartanburg County is tied to that plant mm-hmm. because it came in at a time when the textile industry in the county was collapsing and there were no jobs here. And then right. suddenly there were jobs. And then suddenly there were so many jobs because of that plant. So it kind of, it was, it's like taking out the kudzu and replacing it with bamboo, right? <laughs> like <laughs> Or not weed. One, yeah, or knotweed or something like that. You've taken one species and removed it and then replaced it with another species that is just kind of like it's giving you some resources, but it's tapping others. And so if it disappears, it creates that same vacuum. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, the company feels very similar in a way to the textile industry, definitely, and the way that it dries up and kind of destroys the community in Bourne is similar to the way that it really hurt the communities in Spartanburg County. And being from living near Clifton, even when I moved here, and that was in 2005, we could still see the impact on that community of that mill no longer being there. So we've spoken a lot about the company and what they do is they make this biotech. What even is biotech for us in this universe? Well, we kind of thought we knew. At the beginning, we're like, oh, yeah, we kind of know what it is. And we see what Ra- we see this um, scavenging that Rachel's doing and we see Bourne. And then we find out about Wick. Yeah. Right. There and through Wick, we find out more about the magician. So there's a so there's like a rhetorical way of saying almost like what is biotech? Another way of saying it in the context of the novel is what isn't biotech? Like right. what? Ooh. It seems like everything <laughs> falls under that category. It's about everything but Rachel. That's and the yeah. dirt she stands on is biotech. Only yeah. Rachel, it seems. Yeah. She seems to be the only thing that isn't. Right. Biotech is such an interesting aspect of this novel. And Jeff Vandermeer does a, a really great service to readers of Born, and he has created a companion novella to Born called The Strange Bird, which is actually told from the perspective of a biotech created by the company. And it is one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever read. It is deeply emotional, and I'm not the kind of reader who usually goes in for emotional stuff. I prefer like the more the more intellectual vein, but this is very much tied into an intellectual vein of reading, which is speculative fiction very often. And Strange Bird is described as this legend as part of the magician's clout. And the magician is the oppositional drug dealer to Wick. So it's <laughs> like it's like the city's version of Crips and Bloods. They're kind of fighting over this. And Wick is kind of like the little guy coming up in the world. And he has his little beetles that people eat that make them uh, forget what they're thinking or embody the memories of someone else that are like the good times, basically. It reminds me a lot of the Soma that they eat in uh, Brave New World. (laughs) (laughs) And it kills you by the time you're 30. Like, cool. Live live hard, die young, I guess. Um, Here for a good time. Here for a good time, time. not a long time. Yeah, for sure. If I come up on 30, I can kind of sympathize with that. Yeah, I get it. I I get get it. it. Yeah. Um, but Wick's kind of like the little guy in the world and he's trying to figure out how to protect the balcony cliffs, protect himself, protect Rachel. Bourne throws, throws this real wrench in the plans and then the magician, um, is trying really hard to do her own thing and she is destroyed by, I mean, she's hoisted by her own petard really. She tries to make this attack on Mord. It fails. Rumors fly that she has disappeared, but a strange bird 
appears in her place and is flying around town, but Rachel's never seen it, and she assumes that it's just like a nonsense legend or rumor that's come up. What we find out in this novella is that Strange Bird is actually real, and she's been built as a biotech, so you get an idea of what exactly the biotech is constituted of, and it's human consciousness and animal parts, Mm -hmm. (laughs) essentially. So Wick kind of references it in his letter as part of Mord, or being part of the Mord project, basically, and building Mord was to essentially manipulate a human and manipulate human consciousness into this bear and it drove that human consciousness insane and that is why this bear terrorizes the city because it is actually in madness and can't get out and so i think if you read born and you're looking for more of the biotech aspect to get clarity on it you have to read the strange bird because it really does a lot to help you understand exactly what kind of torment the company has created on the on the city and on the the people and things that live there related to strange bird um and the ending of born can the biotech be destroyed or killed it's a great question what are you thinking joseph well could we see was, the final confrontation? Yeah. And Bo- Born is still there. That Born and Mord have this confrontation. Later on, Rachel finds what she identifies as Born. What what I envision in that moment is just like, you know how you were a kid and there was the parachute in gym class. Hmm. And you like mm-hmm. you make the parachute go up and down and then you go up and then you duck under it. I think about that giant constantly because I want to do it as a grown up. I think, yeah, th- yeah I want to do it as a grown up too. But I think of Bourne as doing that. Like he makes himself into a giant parachute and blows himself up and then just like wraps himself over Mord and then they mm-hmm. explode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's how the book ends <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> Not completely though. But yeah, Rachel refines Bourne at the end and he's just this little like sea anemone sitting or on the ground is but he? She's, or is he yeah. who knows rachel says that she feels certain that that is born and she takes him into the house puts him in a corner in the sun and he just sits there he never grows yeah i guess i guess for me the way that i i was thinking about the um the function of biotech in in this book and kind of in the extended um born universe the borniverse yeah that, that constitutes this book the strange bird and then dead astronauts is um is that you know while there were particular ways in which um those uh biotech creations were used and sort of explained as as jess was saying you know forms of human consciousness wedded to um organic uh or other organic life forms um I, I was thinking about it almost in a in a more like systemic or or broad way as a as a really useful metaphor for thinking about uh, human impacts on on the environment, um, you know, in the sense of, you know, the way in which human life and human beings have managed, changed and transformed the environment in their own image in some form and, and an easy an easy example that would be familiar to anyone would be something like a lawn and like what actually goes into like a grass lawn and maintaining it not just mowing it but like keeping it grass as opposed to 
clover or thistle or whatever else that that you're trying to root out of it um managing from from the human perspective any sort of creatures and critters that might pop up in it whether they're moles or fire ants or or whatever but at least in my mind that would be that's like a classic example of a certain kind of something like biotech that a lot of us live with and largely take for granted um, where maybe we think of it as nature, we think of it as natural, but when we do that, we often will divorce the, um, the active maintenance that we're doing or that is done by, by other humans on this, this wild environment. And that's, and, and talking about that, it almost sounds like behind what I'm saying is that there is some world out there or there are some places that are uh, untouched or are unimpacted by by human activity and human management. And I don't believe that. Um, and that's why I say, you know, at least for me, when I think about the world of this novel and I connect it up to our own world in some way, I just end up finding myself saying, well, what isn't biotech, right? Like what isn't managed and affected and transformed by us? And, and so, you know, Jess, when you were talking about, when you were talking about the, the magician in the novel, she's a character that I thought about a lot in relation to Rachel, because I think she shows us, she shows us a different way of having a relationship towards this biotech that has everything to do essentially with directly changing the 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 nature of and the operation of that biotech uh, towards her own desires and towards her own will rather than simply saying what are you what are you doing here who do you think you are i mean the the sort of inquisitive and and sort of open-ended relationship that rachel is able to occupy with born and it's not easy and it's not perfect and it it's fractious and whatever, but it doesn't start from that point of I need to manage this to make this what I want and to get what I want out of it. Yes. So it's a long winded, it's a long winded way of thinking about that, but it's another way in which, at least for me, as I was reading the book, I saw so many parallels and so many ways in which this book can be a really useful lens for thinking about how I live my own life. And what you're impacting as you do it. Right. Earlier, I brought up Wick's letter to Rachel and the fact that most of Bourne comes from the perspective of Rachel. And I'd like to talk about Vandermeer's writing style in this novel for a little bit and get your thoughts, both of you, because this is kind of uniquely told in a certain way. It's They're almost epistolary. Yeah. Not quite as structured as a traditional epistolary novel, but we have Wick's letter. We have what almost kind of feels like a daily diary from um, Rachel as she's telling what happened. And then we have an actual diary from a born that Rachel finds later. Which is quite a treat. And I want to give this visual to the reader, the visual I came up with. We'll, we'll also link this on our website because when Carmenia found it, I was like, this is the best thing we've ever found related to the podcast. Mm -hmm. So I'm like 28 or something like that. And as a kid of that generation, I remember the little key diaries that I had growing up that were really common that you could get everywhere. You could get really expensive ones or really cheap ones from the dollar store. 
And it was this little like journal that had some cute little cutesy graphics on it. And it had a little lock that you had on it. It had a little key so that you could lock up all your little thoughts that you had as like a 10 year old girl. <laughs> and Bourne's journal, when Rachel finds it, has a lock on it. So that's immediately what I thought of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it had like a picture of a fairy princess on the front <laughs> yeah. of it or something. And somehow all of these all of these journals were like uncannily glossy, like weirdly shiny. Yes. Weirdly shiny. Super shiny. And really no matter what you put it through, it stayed kind of shiny. So I imagine mm. Bourne finding this as he's scavenging. Other people have tossed it aside and Bourne finds it and is like, ah, I can keep a journal just like Rachel. <laughs> I can do this too. Mm. <laughs> and just have like in it like really big handwriting sometimes and sometimes it's really scratched up little handwriting. Yeah, it just it's like eight different languages, some of which <laughs> Rachel doesn't even yeah. know what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, Born's diary is just uh, an imaginative treat as well as a treat on the page itself. Yeah, very entertaining. But we have a lot going on in this as far as writing style. For sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a running thread in... Um, a lot of Jeff Vandermeer's work. Uh, and it's something that really jumped out to me in rereading this book for, for the show and, and also for, um, for the book club um, that he, he likes to use uh, these different levels of recording and, and testimony. Um, it shows up in the area X trilogy in different ways. And it shows up in the other books in these um, in, in, extended born universe uh in 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 different ways and you know i don't necessarily have uh, a super well thought out theory for exactly why that is but i do think that one of the things that he is really interested in in this book in particular is the relationship between writing and a sense of the self you know and this is this is easily documented and has been sort of theorized and written about in relation to the production of uh, personal narratives and memoirs and so on. We, uh, we connect events across time and that gives us this sense of a continuous sense of self. Um, but then we also are able to use those spaces to ask questions of ourselves. And one of the things that's interesting about the way this book is structured is that it's broken up into short sections that have subtitles. Mm -hmm. And the subtitles will be directly connected to the content of what follows. Um, So One that's really interesting is what happened when I took Born outside on purpose. Yeah, yeah. And that's just one example, right? That like connects to exactly what what's going to follow from but you could flip through the book and find different ones how i first met the magician and what she meant now or how i tried to cope or something like this they all tell their own little like mini story before you get into the actual section almost and and this is all this is connected in some way to the unique way in which um vandermeer chooses to characterize rachel through this narrative style um, where we we learn later in the novel um, some of what she has been trying with Wick's help to forget and how in some ways this this story as it stands up to that point 
it, it's like a palimpsest. It's writing over other writing and kind of creating some other some other script. But there's but we know or we come to know that there is this like subsurface level thing. So it's a very interesting thing that I think is it's not unique necessarily to to Vandermeer, but it really does it adds another level of complexity to his work and it shows and it even shows through Wick's letter and through Bourne's wonderful, you know, <laughs> assumably glossy journal, um, you know, uh, another another experiment in writing a self. And that becomes so interesting with Bourne because for him, the question of personhood or something like a self is entirely hypothetical, right? Right. Yes. And one, of, one of the things I really like, too, about the way that this is told as kind of a journal but without dates that's usually how we isolate each entry in a journal is with dates or some identification of time but for Rachel they're identified with those subtitles instead so that is the way of telling time more so than like an actual date to show us the way in which the story is progressing so you have to kind of analyze for yourself how long things are happening and since these are almost like vignettes where they're just chunks of the story you have to determine for yourself how long this process is going on for and that's a very unique detail I think to me in terms of the way that this story is told and I think it it adds a a layer of challenge to to the reading for a reader that some some readers might find off-putting but some would find really engaging because it does it creates a level of mystery just around this character in general right there's a kind of mystery at the center of the self that Vandermeer is really interested in presenting to us through these like time dilation experiments where suddenly we're in an event but that event then is connected to another event um, and it does require some level of trust on the level of the reader or on, on the part of the reader uh, to to be willing to proceed from this subsection to this subsection to this subsection to want to see what's going to happen next. So with that, Carmenita, I wanted to hear specifically you listen to the audiobook. Yes. Right? Surprising I, no one. <laughs> yeah. Surprising absolutely no one who's listened to any episode of this podcast. Talk a little bit about that experience. So the first experience I have with any audiobook is I go to see who the day reader is. When you really love audiobooks like I do, they kind of become like watching a TV show or a movie. You have your favorite narrators, just like you have your favorite actors. And sometimes you start a movie and you know you know that actor from somewhere and you can't focus on the movie because you have to check their IMDb to see where they're from. And it's almost always Law and Order. <laughs> yes. That's what will happen to me with audiobooks. If I start an audiobook and I recognize the narrator but I can't remember where they're from, I can't really put my finger on it, I'll have to stop and look through their catalog. So I've started doing that at the beginning. So first I look at the narrator and I see what other books this narrator has done. Bourne has actually my favorite narrator, who is Bonnie Turpin. She does a phenomenal job with all kinds of voices and all kinds of stories from realistic to contemporary romance to high science fiction. And one of the great things about Bonnie Turpin for this book is as she's reading Rachel, she has kind of a young, almost girlish kind of voice, which really helps bring back to attention or bring to constant attention how young Rachel is and not only how young she is in age, but how young she is in her understanding of the company and the biotech around her. She doesn't have the deep 
knowledge and the deep history that Wick has, even though we sort of get the idea they're about the same physical age, Wick's knowledge just goes far deeper than Rachel's. And Rachel just came to the city a few years ago where we, before we find out that he is a biotech, we kind of get the idea that Wick was born and raised in the city, had always been there. And so um, she takes this kind of girlish young voice and then switches a little bit to being a little bit younger when she reads Bourne's lines. And there's this really great thing that she does for Bourne's voice that constantly reminds you that Bourne is kind of like Rachel's child, where she gives Bourne this very childlike, not only tone, but the way he speaks in syllables. So everyone else in the book just calls Rachel, Rachel. Just one word that kind of runs together. Mm-hmm. When she reads Bourne, he enunciates, almost over-enunciates her name. So it goes to Ray-chell. Very hard ch sound for the second half of her name. Especially when Boyne's getting a little whiny and he wants to do a certain thing and Rachel keeps telling him no. Bonnie Turpin has him going, Ray-chell! <laughs> <laughs> so it's just a really like... That's when you go from narrating to voice acting. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that's what makes a really great narrator and how Bonnie Turpin excels in every book that she does because it just really makes Bourne come alive. And you're kind of always knowing Bourne is basically kind of moving through the world like a little kid. And that's something that I don't think I would have had the constant memory of as I was reading it. And like you said, Jess, we don't really have a clear concept of time. So I probably would have just read Bourne's um, language and voice as getting more mature as the story goes on. Mm -hmm. But Bonnie Turpin doesn't do that. And I'm glad she doesn't because when we come to the end, we kind of see just on the page alone, not only how Bonnie Bonnie Turpin reads him, but on the page, Wick just is saying, well, not Wick, I'm sorry. Bourne is saying, I'm going to be good, Rachel. I'm going to do the right thing now, which is a very little kid way of viewing problem solution yeah Mm -hmm. and especially to say it to another person to confirm that that's what you're doing like as adults internally we can say i'm going to be good now this is going to be a good day like we can convince ourselves of that but it's very youthful and very childlike to have to say that to someone else to declare your intent to be good Mm -hmm. right and i think if i was reading it i kind of would have been taken a little back taken back a little bit by this character that I'm kind of reading as maturing as he goes through the story and then suddenly being very childlike again. But Bonnie Turpin keeps him very childlike for the whole, na- all of his narration and all of his lines. And it's just so incredibly well done as far as ad- the way that this is, so this is the way that the narration adds to Vandermeer's style. I think format is a really important part too of reader's advisory that we don't necessarily think about a lot, but this is something we encounter often with narrators and audiobook listeners is that there are audiobook narrators they will not listen to. <laughs> they will refuse. Even if a book would be perfect for them, they will not listen if it's a certain narrator. And that adds that adds so much more to the reader's advisory conversation where we're trying to find Mm -hmm. a book for someone because then you're also looking at format and saying there's an additional variable here that we need to consider to make sure that you're going to be happy with this. And it's very similar if we're thinking about something like if it's a graphic novel format or if it's a magazine that they're looking for or if it's fiction or nonfiction, like all those, they aren't necessarily, they're not genres, but they're a way of consuming the final product that can be 
more or less appealing to the patron depending on where they are in their journey with what they read um a version that you read had that right sorry i messed up no go (laughs) try that again um the version of this book that you read had a very specific format style didn't it yeah it's actually kind of unique um oftentimes when a paperback version of a book is released there will be additional content most frequently you'll see something like a reading group guide in the back of it or an interview with the author or something like that in this case what is included in the paperback version of born is a bestiary which is an illustrated version from someone named teams the scholar who has attempted to pull together a (laughs) team's bestiary essentially he's attempted to pull together a way of defining the biotech that's in the city and he has drawn a number of different things of note is the fact that neither born nor mord are in the uh bestiary but strange bird is and Strange Bird is defined by teams as purely legendary. Um, other things that we run across are like the the company moss that people eat. Um, one of my favorite things is, what is it? It was mice, solemn looking. Um, <laughs> as opposed to the gleeful looking mice. Yeah, there's also anonymous meat, comma, packets of. So it's, it's told with a little bit of comedy and humor, but there's the... Details that are revealed in the bestiary give you give you so many more like little snippets because it's like someone coming a generation or two later who has the hot goss on something that happened like 20 years ago that no one cares about. But at least he's written it down so someone can read it. So there's a scene at at one point of Rachel throwing rocks at kids (laughs) like when she's an old lady, which is really funny to think about, like kind of fleshes out her life and where she goes from here. And it's just uh, under the Leviathan section. She's like throwing rocks at kids and saying, get off my lawn, basically, and talking about <laughs> get off my cliffs. Yeah, get off my cliffs. Um, <laughs> but it, there's like these additional little details that are given and things like that. And that's one of the things that you can do with a format. When you expand format, you're also giving yourself the opportunity to expand the universe. So for Vandermeer, incorporating a novella, incorporating an experimental novel like he did with the dead astronauts, incorporating this bestiary in the paperback version, for Bonnie Turpin to incorporate like voice acting into porn, all of that expands our understanding of this universe so much and so tremendously. And it really, it's, I mean, I think a premier example of world building for sure. Yeah, because Teams is one of the last characters that we're actually introduced to in mm-hmm. the novel. Literally yeah. in the last like two pages, he's introduced as one of the boys here and the closest to being my child, as Rachel puts it. Um, so uh, he's he's sort of an adopted child of of Rachel, and uh, and I really love the way that Vandermeer introduces the bestiary because it also signals. It signals something about the particular way in which he wants us to think, not just, I think, about the the fictional world, but also our own biotech world that we find ourselves in, um, where he writes, My adopted mother told me many times when I was young that to reclaim our world, we must know it better. And to that end, she gave me an education I am unwilling to waste. 
Therefore, the descriptions below represent my initial attempt at beginning such a project of rediscovery focused on the riches found in this very city. But that sense that, you know, in writing through, in this case, not writing a diary and not writing necessarily a series of memories, but writing a bestiary is a way of reclaiming the world. Yeah, it recalibrates your vision of what the biotech is, because especially with Mord, so much of it is... um, fear-based right and Mord is danger to the city I mean he's partially he's part god he's savior he's protector but he's also terror and nightmare for a lot of the people and um that fear stops everyone from seeing the functionality and even the beauty of the biotech that are there that it isn't necessarily all just like broad scale bad you know there there's a lot more nuance to it than that and by and by according all of these different all of these different species and creatures some kind of value it also resets the the sense in which they have complex interrelationships with one another and also with the city itself they they all serve a serve a purpose or serve a particular function all right it's time for the readers advisory corner my favorite corner of the room to be in always the corner you live in yep this is the corner i live in i'm on that the corner of reader street and advisory road <laughs> goodness that's where i live boy, oh boy. so carmenita uh keeping born in mind what do you suggest people read next or watch or whatever i have two um suggestions um my first one is the broken earth trilogy by nk jemison we've profiled jemison's work before but i don't think she's ever made it into our recommend readers advisory corner um so the broken earth trilogy has a similar voice to born in that the narrators rachel and the main narrator of the broken earth trilogy are very similar in not only how they view the world, but how they're navigating the world. So the Broken Earth trilogy is post-apocalyptic in a way that's different from any other post-apocalyptic literature you may have read. Um, This is a world that's almost sort of like uh, our kind of concept of maybe almost a medieval 15 to 1700s kind of environment that's very agrarian. And then this cataclysmic world-ending event happens. And this kind of event happens roughly every 10 generations. where And that's why it's called the Broken Earth. These are people where they're kind of constantly fighting essentially these massive earthquakes. And um, the main character is comes home and finds that her husband has murdered her son and has kidnapped her daughter. And the main storyline kind of follows her as she's trying to get her daughter back. But that's a very simplistic plot it's really about survival and relationship between the human and the earth and then mother and child and this woman as she makes these other relationships with these other people it brings up the similar themes of memory which we didn't really get to into too much on the podcast but memory is a big part of the borniverse as they're able to manipulate memory in very specific ways and the way biotech holds memory all of that comes into as major themes, and memory is a big theme of the Broken Earth trilogy as well. So it's one of those books where the plots are very different, the worlds are different, but if the things in Born that appeal to you are the same things that are in the Broken Earth trilogy. 
my second recommendation is um, a television show, and it's really season four of a television show. So the season four of the show Torchwood is called Miracle Day. And now Torchwood is a spinoff of Doctor Who, but you don't have to have watched Doctor Who or know anything about Doctor Who to enjoy Torchwood. Torchwood is one of those shows that split up in such a way that you can really start with any season and really understand the full story. So for people that are diehard, you have to start with season one, episode one. Doesn't necessarily apply to Torchwood. You can start with season four and you won't lose anything. Each season is an isolated story. But in Miracle Day, it's set in the present world, you know, whatever the present world means at that time, it's just the present era. All of a sudden people stop dying, which is really exciting at first, but then that also means people with mortal injuries people with sicknesses that have ravaged their bodies, no one is dying. So people are in horrible car accidents and living. People are not dying of cancer that has basically come too close to destroying their body. And people aren't dying of heart attacks. And so we start to see hospitals immediately overrun. Diseases start to spread rampant throughout the world. And it becomes an immediate, oh no. (laughs) And I think that's a good... um, for born because in born we have this concept of death and ending and what does that even mean and with miracle day the characters and the people of the world as they're experiencing no one dying it completely changes everyone's perception of death as well as life and what it means to live when you cannot die and the different ways that different groups try to come up with how they can figure out a way to die. So it gets into some very heavy topics, as well as some like government cover-ups and companies that are unethical or doing really shady things. So it's um, a really interesting way to look at life and death the same way that Bourne does. Joseph, what do you got for us? So I actually have two relatively new nonfiction books that I want to talk about. Mm. Um, because I I often think that that could be that could really be a really useful way into Jeff Vandermeer's interest in um, the environment um, and environmental writing and nature writing in particular. Um, so the first one of these I want to talk about is uh, a really great book by Jonathan Myberg, and it's called A Most Remarkable Creature: The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey. And it is, um, on the surface, a study of um, a particular type of uh, a particular type of falcon that's called a caracara, um, and they live in various far-flung locales. A lot of them in uh, a lot of different types of species in and around South America. But they're they're unique birds uh, because they are so intelligent and unlike a lot of other birds of prey, they display a capacity for invention and puzzle solving and actually just play um, themselves. They will, uh, they'll try to play tag with people that they encounter (laughs) in the wild. And their, Myberg's Instagram has uh, videos of this where they swoop down and try to steal his hat 
um, like in early in We're early. Sure, these aren't seagulls. They're not seagulls, um, <laughs> but close. Yeah, uh, in in early writings uh, from Charles Darwin and um, and uh, William Henry Hudson, uh, both writers will will document how the birds would steal different things from their camp and play around with them um, and hide them from the from the humans. And, and so they just have this boundless capacity for intelligence. But the thing that's really distinctive and unique about this book is not just simply to introduce us to these birds that we may not know about, but the way that, the way that Myberg writes, I think, shares something in common with Vandermeer in the way that it's, it's just very searching and at times very philosophical, and it veers back and forth from um, historical anecdotes where we're reading along with Darwin as he's He's on his uh, voyage uh, in the Beagle, um, and we're reading along with with William Henry Hudson, but then we're also reading Myberg's own experiences and his sort of reflections as a human, uh, uh, you know, thinking about his own impacts on wild nature and his responsibility towards wild nature. Um, so it's a it's a wonderful book. It's it's brand new um, and out now, and we have it in all sorts of formats. If you want to check it out, um, and that that last idea about rethinking a, a person's responsibility towards nature leads into my second recommendation, which is a book, a brand new book by uh, Barbara J. King, um, that is called Animals Best Friends, Putting Compassion to Work for Animals in Captivity and the Wild. And uh, Barbara King uh, originally got her start as an anthropologist, um, uh, but in the past few years, she has been writing really heavily about um, animal cognition and animal social life. Uh, Her last book was called How Animals Grieve. Uh, We have it in the collection here. Um, but, uh, but her newest book is, uh, a really interesting examination of different scenes of human encounters with animal life. Um, and, uh, there's a long chapter in the middle of the book that is incredibly affecting about, um, animals, uh, essentially on the dinner plate, um, and, uh, choosing choosing to eat animals and what that what that can entail, um, the ravages of factory farming and so on. There's a chapter about zoos. There's a chapter about biomedical, uh, uh, you know, testing and and so on. Now, in surveying that, you might think this is going to be a book that's incredibly dour and incredibly sad. There's sad stuff in it, but it's really it's really deep and searching and interesting. Because King's perspective is one of trying to meet people where they are and trying to find places where people can think more carefully and compassionately about their relationships with animals. Whether we're talking about pests, whether we're talking about uh, pets, uh, whether we're talking about food or whatever. And she does this as a really effective storyteller where she centers herself in different stories where she thinks, well, I did this and, you know, maybe that wasn't really the right thing to do. (laughs) And I live with that and I have to think about that and so on. And so she's a really effective communicator um, in in situations that can feel incredibly loaded and incredibly heavy. 
ethically speaking. Uh, but both of those are brand new books, and um, and I and I, I am, urge you if the if that reader's advisory question about your relationship towards your own pets or towards animals in general is the thing that could draw you into this book. This could be the thing that draws you out towards these other books. I like when we can talk about nonfiction. Yeah. Doesn't get enough love. Yeah. Uh, So Jess, what about you? Sorry, we're going back to fiction for a second. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to highlight another new book, which is called Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. He's he won the Nobel Prize in Literature. He's a huge, huge name. When he writes a book, it's a big deal. And Claire and the Sun is told from the perspective of a character who you could think of as kin to Wick. Uh, Clara is considered a, she is what is called an artificial friend, and she is sold in a storefront. Clara has this a special clarity and understanding of the world around her that's a little bit deeper than other artificial friends. And she is ultimately picked up and taken home to be the artificial friend of one of the other main characters in the novel. And like much of Ishiguro's work, it really digs into this idea of what it means to be who you are, how you exist and move about the world, what your relationships look like with others. He and Vandermeer are both working, I think, on a similar plane, just coming at it from very different directions. Again, it's that same lump of clay, but they're making two very different sculptures. And it's a beautifully rendered novel. Um, It's fantastic. It's emotional without being heavy. Uh, Clara has such a wonderful voice. Uh, this is a book I've talked about with a number of patrons and they're just really blown away by the way that it's written and getting that perspective is so unique I think Um, so if you're wanting to kind of dig into Wick and his mindset a little bit more especially after reading that letter this is definitely the book for you the other thing I'd like to highlight is actually a podcast episode so if you're listening to this podcast episode that means you have a way to listen to podcasts in general And I'd really, really highly like to recommend an episode of the podcast Factually with Adam Conover. Um, He's a comedian, but he's also very interested in the world around him. And he used to be on a TV show called Adam Ruins Everything, (laughs) which um, is a top five TV show for me. But what I'd like to recommend is the eighth episode of his podcast, which is subtitled Solving the Climate Crisis, Preserving Biodiversity, and the Sixth Extinction with Emma Maris. And Emma Maris is, um, if you Google her, she has a great TED Talk about biodiversity and preserving what we have for the future, and especially urban biodiversity. And this was someone that I was looking into having here when we were planning the big read, because what she writes about is very very adjacent to and much can be considered the real life effects of what Jeff Vandermeer is exploring in his novels about what we appreciate, what we're thinking about with pests, both um, plant and animal pests, what we're thinking about when we look at a weed. Is it a weed because we say it's a weed? Is it actually damaging? What is happening there? What are you thinking about dandelions and kudzu that is so different from you know, um, like winter rye or something like that. What is it that makes it so much different? So there's a lot to think about there and a lot to unpack, but Emma Maris does it in a very thoughtful, 
considerate, kind of kind to the world way. And it is, again, much like with Barbara King's work about meeting people where they are and helping them progress on their journey and not necessarily just yanking them through life to get them to a certain point, but walking with them on the way. And I think especially in Spartanburg County, we can do a lot to consider the biodiversity that we have around us. We have a really biodiverse area. Um, it isn't all just kudzu and bamboo, I swear. (laughs) I (laughs) promise it's not. There's a lot of, you know, we even think about as someone who's eradicated a lot of poison ivy over the last year and a half, it makes me rethink my relationship to poison ivy, how it works, how it functions, what it's for. And when we just say it's, it's a waste, we're taking away a bird's food in the fall. Right. right. So we really need to think more about our impact as humans and as part of the Anthropocene and what we can do to ease the burden on everything that we impact. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Book Lovers Podcast. All our titles are available in the Spartanburg County Public Library's collections via spartanburglibraries.org. For more information about the titles discussed on this episode, other episodes, or to learn about the hosts, check out our website, bookloverspodcast.squarespace.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to Book Lovers on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts.